You've attended council hearings in person. You've tuned in to our televised proceedings on Channel 13. Now, you have the chance to listen to us on the radio as we demystify the work of the people who do it. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council with your host, Josh Gibson. Thank you, deep voice person, the funky backbeat. Indeed, this is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. You can't have a government without a council, so you can't have a government radio station without a council show. This is it. I'm Josh Gibson, Director of Communications for the Council. You may also know me as our voice on social media at Council of DC. Uh, We are back after a bit of a hiatus, um, and we're continuing to do shows uh, via Zoom. And our guest today is our most uh, prolific uh, interviewee, uh, the delightful uh, Ward 1 Council member, Brianna Doe. Hey, Josh. How's it going? Thank you so much for your uh, persistence, insanity, whatever it is that keeps bringing you back. Uh, bless your heart for it, because uh, you're very kind. Thanks. Um, Good to be here. Yes. So, um, ripped from the headlines, uh, our topic today is going to be a hearing that will have been a few days back by the time people see this, but it's just yesterday for uh, the council member and me. Uh, but the hearing on back to school in the era of COVID. Um, And uh, the council member is living a circumstance that will speak to our listeners and viewers. So why don't you tell folks uh, what what your last day or two has been like? Oh, yeah, don't worry. My kids do not have COVID, thank God. Um, But we're all homesick. And anytime anyone gets sick now, you always think, uh, you always think the worst. So Madeline baby one-year-old started it off um with runny nose and fever and her COVID results came back negative today but we didn't think she had it the doctor was like yeah it's just a cold which is great um while she was out of school at a daycare we got a notice that there had been exposure at daycare that she would have been exposed to had she not been homesick with a cold so I'm kind of like thanking whichever baby gave her the cold because you know, we, this daycare has been open almost the entirety of COVID and we've never had a case. And that's the thing that keeps me up at night. Zoe's now in pre-K four. So she's been feeling fine until last night, maybe this morning around 5am, she uh, woke me up and said she had a headache uh, and it turns out a fever. And so she has what Madeline has and Jason, my husband now has it. And I think it's coming to me soon, starting to get that headache. Um, but it's so fascinating because like psychologically for me, once we kind of heard from the doctor, this doesn't sound like COVID. I was like, you know what? I've never been so glad to have everybody get a cold because it's not COVID. Right. I mean, the stress that you carry around as a parent, Zoe being in person in pre-K four, she's still napping periodically, which they do without masks, which when she stopped napping, mostly at pre-K, I was like, like, this is good. Like, I just, I don't understand how the safety works during napping. And it's one of those common sense questions that parents are asking. Um, so every time she comes home and says she napped, God, that you hadn't, got to do what you got to do, kid, you're four, right? So that's where we are today. <laughs> Excuse me. Everybody's upstairs. I'm downstairs <laughs> trying to hold the fort. Um, it's, a, it's a shame. And I feel like for, for our, um, 
uh, uh, aspiring business people out there that you can't do like mosquito netting made of like N95 masks. So if the kids have to nap at school, that they can't like zip into some kind of a uh, hammock thing or something. Uh, but like, why not plexiglass or something between the cots? I don't know. Maybe some schools are doing that on their own, but that's not what the official napping plan is. It's um, just social distancing. Oh. And the other question I had is, did you, it sounded like maybe a doctor did it. How do you test a one-year-old? A nose swab, nasal swab. Oh, okay. Um, so we took her to her pediatrician. Gotcha. And they have their own lab. So it comes back overnight, which is very nice because if she was feeling better today and if daycare had not closed for the whole week because of the exposure, she would have been able to go back today with that negative test result which we've really relied on throughout the pandemic because anytime one of them gets a cold, it's like, well, we're off to get a COVID test. So we've got to do that today for Zoe now. Um, so she can be cleared to go back to school when she's feeling better. And it's, um, it's hard. I mean, parents are kind of left to themselves to do this. You could, we were debating today, do we want to do an at-home test with Zoe and drop it off? And um, I feel like I can get a faster turnaround time from her pediatrician, even though it involves me having to go take her to a doctor. So we were sort of torn, um, but that's, you know, that's what parents are dealing with. And that's a, it's a bit of what we were talking about yesterday at the round table. Right. And we are, we are lucky in that there are the readily available uh, self-test kits at libraries and a lot of other places where they sure. repurposed the uh, vote, um, drop off your vote boxes as right. COVID test boxes which I think is super smart. and, and is Yeah, simple. actually, I hadn't made that connection, but you're right. It's the same box. <laughs> That's uh, funny. Yeah, it's there. I, I actually, I wouldn't have said it if I had seen it online. I think they are literally the same boxes, just with different it's good recycle stickers. Um, but you're right. I mean, it, they turn them pretty quickly, but it still takes two or three days. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the, I know the tests they're doing in school are, um, are saliva-based, are not... Right based and I know there was at least a portion of the hearing yesterday that was uh, talking about some kids are struggling with and kids are not known for struggling to produce saliva but apparently there are some kids that are struggling with that test and there's no real backup plan if a kid can't produce the saliva for the in-school saliva test. Right I'd heard from parents for the roundtable that in particular with the three and four-year-olds it's just hard to direct them to salivate into the tube, you know, and it doesn't work, they get discouraged or whatever else, a little right. harder with the little guys, who of course, in the long run are going to be the most exposed, because, you know, the next round of vaccines is going to be for five and up. Um, so it's, it's interesting that they chose to do the saliva tests. Um, I think the nasal swabs have been working pretty well for my kids at the doctor's office. Um, but, you know, this is where we are. Right. Um, was there, I, I watched portions of the hearing was, what, like a eight hour, seven, eight hour hearing, I think in total. Yeah. Um, did they talk at all? I know they're starting to be testing supply shortages uh, nationwide. Um, did they talk about whether they have adequate supplies stocked for the, the self-test at the libraries and for the kids at school? I mean, they kept really hitting home that they feel like they have adequate public options. Um, I don't think all of us really agreed with that. And, you know, 
there's definitely a longer turnaround time on the tests right now than there had been even, you know, beginning of the summer. I think that's not surprising given the fact that kids are in school and need to be tested now um, more regularly. And then, so there's a couple things going on, right? So there's a vendor at schools that will test symptomatic people um, and they're doing before they go home from school. And then they also test, they do like that asymptomatic sample. It's so up to 20% of the kids in DCPS will get asymptomatic testings from this vendor. And then if you get sent home, like to quarantine, you're not symptomatic, but someone in your class is, and, or someone's tested positive, your class gets sent home. They instruct you to quarantine and test, but they don't test you before you go home. Right. Which would be such a load off of parents. Um, they also don't send you home with a self-test kit. So when I've asked about this repeatedly, the answer has been, well, we've got testing sites throughout the city. We've got library kits you can pick up. I just think, I mean, look, I'm living this. A lot of parents get this. I mean, even non-parents get this. But if you get a call from your kid's school in the middle of the day saying there's been a positive test result in your kid's class, come pick them up. We're on quarantine. Um, in addition to panicking, which is what I would do you're going, you're in the middle of your work day, you're getting your kid, you're thinking, oh, I got to get my other kid after this. You know, what if that kid's been exposed by my kid? You get home and then you realize you also now got to find a test. Maybe you have some at home because you've grabbed a couple when you've been at the library, but maybe you don't. And it just seems to me like we could do more to help families in this moment. I mean, it's, I don't understand why the answer to can we put tests in backpacks has been yeah, we don't really need to. And also uh, from the hearing yesterday, it seems like, you know, initially they were trying to test uh, 10% uh, randomly. They bumped it to 20%, but it sounds like they're not even at 10 and they wouldn't commit to when they'll hit the 20. Right. Yeah. And then, and they feel really comfortable that that's the right sample size. Um Whereas you, a lot of places, a lot of parents are asking for 100% testing. There are other jurisdictions that are doing that. Um, and I think, so the way that I've really observed all these conversations back and forth between DCPS, the deputy mayor, charters, and parents is there's a real lack of trust that the government entities are doing what's right for my kid for, for all these kids from the parents' perspective. And that's really hard to overcome. And I think it all began with the rollout last year of the reopen plan where not everybody was consulted, really nobody was consulted. And then they kind of had to crawl back out of that hole and say, no, no, we're you know, still tweaking things, et cetera. And I think you know, the trust just isn't there I don't think parents believe DCPS um, or the deputy mayor when they say certain things about this is safe or that's safe or our science and data says this um, because we have the internet and everybody finds their own data source. And also these are our kids. So we're not, we're not going to go with what you say is good for my kid. We're going to go with what we believe is best for our kids. So that's why you have, we heard from parents who are keeping their kids home right now too. Yeah, and I think this goes back to, and I know there was an answer to this, but why they're not uh, temperature testing kids at 
the door because I right. get there on COVID reasons why you could have a fever. Right. End of the day, if you have a fever, you probably shouldn't be at school. Right. That's true. Um, I, I realize that obviously that's an awkward situation. If you're testing a kid, then you don't let him at the building, then you have to notify the parents. I, I get that there's a bit of a waterfall that, you know, domino effect that proceeds from there. But, um, and, and then, I mean, everything you read online is that we could test our way out of this pandemic. If we had really good testing and we instantly quarantined people who actually were uh, tested positive, it would make a world of difference. So the fact that we were at 10, well, let's take a step back. I mean, we were, at first you had to sign to opt into testing. And right. if you opt into testing, you were waiving all legal rights for eternity. Uh, thanks to council uh, pressure, they fl flipped that policy. So yeah. it, it shows they can do the right thing, but it's sort of, they, they just need to be sort of drag kicking and screaming. It's just to, really to exhausting. Get, yeah. Right. I mean, these things seem like common sense to me. And, you know, the, the thing about our jobs as council members is a lot of it is just about asking questions that are relatively common sense. Right. There isn't anything special about me as a council member that makes me better at asking questions than, say, the 15 parents I met with on Monday night to talk about their concerns. Um, and so if it doesn't make sense to me, it's definitely not going to make sense to other parents, right? That's just sort of my baseline. Like, what? This doesn't make sense. Why aren't we doing more? I mean, your point about testing out of it, I mean, we could have done that a year ago, right? If we had had more universal testing everywhere in the district, um, we could have done that. And we certainly heard from constituents then who were saying it. And so, you know, I don't know if all the public knows, but we have a council has a weekly briefing with the city administrator and the director of um, our Homeland Security, our local Homeland Security Agency, and sometimes the Department of Health and sometimes DCPS join. And so we get a chance to ask our questions live and try to get answers to things that constituents have pushed up to us. Um, and that has, in some cases, moved things forward. But in other cases, it's just been an exercise in frustration because the administration will dig in on a certain thing and say, this is the way we're doing it. Yeah, and just to remind folks, because a, a lot of you get this on social media, I'm sure I get it. On, I definitely get it on social media. The you're the government, fix this. Like, don't suggest something changes. And people don't realize that we exist on sort of oversight is on a continuum. You know, right. if there's something we think we can fix with a little nudging, you know, on social media or, um, you know, a, a quote in a media article, like, hey, I don't understand why the kids testing for COVID is opt-in and not opt-out. Um, we, we don't want to hold an oversight hearing on every single topic, and we certainly don't want to legislate on every single topic. So we sort of have a range of tools in our toolkit, including the COVID, the weekly COVID meeting, where right. a lot of times a pointedly asked question, to your point about a big part of your job is asking questions, a pointedly asked question in that kind of meeting can fix something. Right. That's been my experience. Bill. Um, but I think yeah. folks sort of want us to use the sledgehammer every single time. And we generally tend to do that only when it's necessary. Well, and not just that, but when it's effective, right? I mean, the, the fact is that certain things, if we're going to legislate them, just take too long, right? Uh, the emergency legislation is a tool that can only be used for very specific things. 
we can't use it for things that have a fiscal impact. Um, and so a lot of the legislation that we've passed throughout the pandemic has been sort of consensus documents among council members and even the mayor to move certain things forward. Um, you know, moratorium eviction, um, different uh, roles and responsibilities within uh, you know, human services agencies and health-based agencies. And so that like, you know, we were doing that every couple of weeks on the council until our recess. Um, and I think we'll probably have another one of those coming up in October when we come back, but we can't um, do a lot of the things that people are asking for via legislation because it's just not um, allowable. And it also doesn't necessarily, I mean, it, it shouldn't require it. I mean, these should be common sense things that we can fix together. Right, and, and I made a little list of things that through the, the council calls, I think smart decisions the government is being credited with making in the history of the COVID crisis, almost all track back to council pressure on the executive in those calls. So opt out testing in schools versus opt in. They dug their heels in on opt in. We fought it in the council call. We went to opt out. Uh, the Hunger Games, um, vaccination signups where you yeah. had to, you were trying to get Springsteen tickets, you had to get on, you know, exactly eight o'clock and just start hitting refresh. The fact that we went to a registration and a follow-up was something that they said they couldn't do, couldn't do. We hammered, 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 and eventually they did. Um, yeah. And then the third one, which is a, a hugely important, is they said they couldn't do a demographic or geographic breakdown of uh, COVID infections and COVID vaccinations. And we fought, 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 and then they rolled it out. And thank God, because we saw there were such, we could have predicted, but it was better to see the numbers, such disparities. Um, so those are all council oversight success. Yeah. And I was one of the people really pushing on the asymptomatic testing in the schools that wasn't rolled out until we pushed really hard on it. I mean, it's really been a tag team effort because I think even as council members, we tend to get discouraged if we ask for the same thing over and over again and keep getting the no. So being able to say, all right, this week, this week Nadeau is going to push and next week Henderson will push and then Silverman and then Alan, you know, it's, um, you know, we've been having the conversation weekly about virtual options, right? We have parents who are concerned about sending their unvaccinated children to school for a whole host of reasons. It's not just about that child's health, but about what they bring home to their high-risk family members. And there are virtual options for some children who have health concerns, but not anything beyond that. So say, you know, you have a second grader whose mom, you know, has diabetes or uh, a respiratory disease. Um, and it, they're very concerned that, that that child would bring COVID home and even a vaccinated parent, you know, could have a really adverse reaction. There's no virtual option for that. There's no, uh, take home work for that. And we started seeing um, children get unenrolled in school because they've been absent for so long, getting calls from CFSA. This is a thing that we talked about yesterday. And I have oversight of CFSA. One of the really important jobs they have is investigating claims of educational neglect, truancy, you know, children not going to school because oftentimes pre-COVID, even during COVID, if a kid's not going to school, there's something going on at home that could be harmful to that child. And so to, to layer that on top of what's going on with COVID, I think has put us in a weird place 
where you have parents who are otherwise engaged with the school. Um, the, the teachers know why the kid isn't there, uh, but they have no choice but to report ed neglect. And um, it triggers a whole cascade of things. So, you know, we talked about it last night and the different um, members of the executive were confident that it's not really happening that dramatically, but we know at least of a handful of cases where it is. CFSA is showing up and knocking on the door. And that's terrifying for parents too, right? I mean, could, you know, if something goes wrong, um, you could have your kids taken away because you haven't been sending them because you're afraid of COVID. I mean, that's the worst case scenario, but I can imagine there's a lot of people out there who don't have any reason to trust the government. And they're worried that that's what will happen. And that's come up before, even before the, um, where we hit the 10 day mark. Um, in school starting this year. People were just worried that this was an eventuality when we talked about reopening and people not wanting to go back. So that's a tough one too. Yeah, and the challenge is, um, you know, when you make a rule with, uh, you know, virtual versus not virtual, um, if you could trust people to only use an exemption when they truly needed it. You know, if a, yeah. if a kid, you know, a, again, you has a parent with a pre-existing condition, or if a sibling, one sibling, is has to go home in quarantine, there's no uh, way for the other kid, other kid or kids, to not go to school, the way the rules yeah. are written. But the challenge is, if you opened up virtual and you didn't require a firm doctor's note kind of thing, you'd have a bunch of people that just for you know, maybe out of concern or for another reason, used virtual and all of a sudden we'd see half the student body would vanish. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, and it comes back to trust, right? So there are people who are never gonna be comfortable sending their kids unvaccinated to schools, period, right? And that's a group of people. But you also have folks who want so badly to send their kids back and to feel comfortable doing it and they just don't see that the measures in place are ever going to make them feel comfortable as they are right now. That's why the conversation yesterday really centered around testing and what's the definition of a close contact and why are we eating lunch indoors and unmasked and, 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 right. Um, I met uh, a 12 year old, I believe she's 12 years old at um, Czech who was saying uh, I don't need all this fancy equipment to eat my lunch outside. Just take my brown bag and sit on the ground, right? Um, and like, oh, right. Kids are used to sitting on the ground. I mean, it's not a long-term solution, but it's also like, you know, maybe it's a conversation with parents. Would you be okay if the only option we had for outside was sitting on the ground for the next couple of weeks while we're waiting for the middle piece of the picnic table that we ordered to arrive, right? It's like, how can we be problem solvers and work together? Yeah, I mean that, we already talked about napping, but napping and meals are the, the giant Achilles heels of this whole back to school plan. Because if you're a reliable mask wearer, you're wearing a good quality mask, uh, you know, I'm no epidemiologist, but you're in fairly safe ground. But then when you have to take your mask off to nap if you're younger or at mealtime, that is a real uh, weakness in the system. And it seems like despite all the pressure on outdoor uh, dining, the schools, uh, the system is not, the system could easily say to each school, we know you need flexibility. You all have different layouts, and different right. facilities. Within a week, we want your outdoor dining. 
Um, but instead, they're just like, we'll order equipment. It might take two months. And there's no pressure on the schools to. Right. It's equipment if you want it. Right. When I was touring schools before everything reopened, there was one school that didn't understand that they had the ability to apply for it. Right. Yeah. They and just don't have any. Or outdoor meals raises questions of oversight and are there enough teachers to oversee the kids if they go outside? And then if you need to involve volunteers, do the volunteers due to the understandably, but still burdensome volunteer uh, um, approval process, fingerprinting, and, and probably now, I mean, do we have to COVID test our volunteers? Um, everyone has to be vaccinated if they're gonna be in a school. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, that, that's another one where I feel like there's a real opportunity for them to have a win. Um, yeah. And re remember part of the dialogue around this has also been an equity issue. So if you have schools that don't have active parents or parents who are not available to volunteer, those schools have a disadvantage, right? Does it break down the same way all the other inequities break down? And I think the answer is probably yes. And then how do you work through that? But I think you don't start with, uh, we can't do this because it might create inequities. You, you, you gotta go with, okay, this is what we wanna do. Where are the inequities and how do we work through those? You know, what's the answer there? Which is what we should be doing, you know, on all the issues where we see inequity. And plus, I mean, early on in COVID, they had, um, I forget what it was called, but there was the opportunity for people to sign up to help out with testing and, and uh, so forth. And right. they were deluged with the number of people. So I guarantee right. people that would spend a few hours a week standing outside of school, keep an eye on the kids. Uh, you know, Back then I asked pretty regularly, like what's going on with the COVID volunteer corps and why can't we use them for this? Or why can't we use them for that? And I got a lot of answers that were frustrating. Like, oh, we can't use them for this because people don't like to sign up for a long enough shift or we can't use them that, you know, and it's like, all right, well then why did we have people sign up? Um, I would bet significant money um, that there's a bunch of people that signed up that have never been contacted. Yeah, which is a shame because people are dying to help. And admittedly, like it's, oh, I can only help from two to 2.30 every other Thursday. Like, yeah, is helpful, but I'm sure there are folks that actually would, <coughs> you know, if they have a minimum five hour a week, you know, uh, commitment or something would do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, so was there any further commitment in the hearing yesterday to advance outdoor dining? I mean, I think it's really the same sort of, we want to do it, we're waiting on equipment, you know, we're trying to make the volunteer process a little easier. Um, I think parents are frustrated really with the timing. We do have a logistics challenge and, you know, the national supply of things is difficult with COVID, but we also... Or I heard from some parents offline that there are some times where DCPS is saying that, and then they ask for a copy of the purchase order, and the purchase order was submitted pretty recently. So I think this goes back to the lack of trust. I mean, if you don't trust, I mean, the fact that parents feel like they have to ask that question to me shows there's a lack of trust. Um, and if that is actually true, then that's pretty disgusting that that they're lying. And I don't have direct information on that. So I can't say whether it is or it isn't, but we have some parents who are pretty confident that's the case at certain schools. And that's, that's gotta be really hard for them because they're working to try to try to make this work for their families, right? Every parent is 
dealing with a set of difficult choices. So for us, um, Zoe's pre-K four has had, our schools had uh, four COVID case notifications since it opened August 30th. And one was a false positive. Um, and that's terrifying. And we started a conversation in our household about, well, what if we keep her out for a little while, just let some of this wave peter out. And um, they said, well, here's what would happen. Um, we kept her out for too long. They would unenroll her. And because it's pre-K four, it's not by right. She would just have nowhere to go. Because in pre-K-4, you don't have an in-boundary school, um, which is a complicating factor for the little ones. At least in your in-boundary school, they unenroll you, you can come back, um, but not so with pre-K-3 and 4. So that's, it was just a non-starter. I mean, we can't have nowhere for her to go ever until kindergarten. Um, and that, that's, those are the choices that we had, right? Those are the options that we're discussing. They're not good ones. Yeah. And it, I mean, it also calls to mind, you know, like when there's snow closures for school, you know, DC always seems like a really hard uh, nut to crack in terms of closing for snow. And a lot of folks don't realize that at least part of that equation is there are kids who won't eat if they don't go to school. There are kids who during the summer won't have air conditioning yeah. for a point of their day if they don't go to school. Um, yeah. And that has to weigh into the decision about virtual uh, as well. Um, Absolutely. It's important for those, those kids where um, they, you know, over the long run, whether they live or die, just of daily life circumstances relies on them being in school. Well, and this is where I think it's really important to hear what parents are actually saying. You know, what I hear is, we understand the CDC says, the benefit of being in school in person is greater than the risk of COVID among children. That's what they say. And there are a lot of parents who are hearing that message and understand it and have seen it in their own kids. Children have not done well, not all children, but a lot of children have not done well virtually. And all the parents were saying is, so make it safe, right? Like do all the things possible to make it safe for my kids for me to be comfortable sending them and for us i already explained why we can't pull her out but also she's social she loves it and it's a leap of faith i mean my kid might get covid and i might be really mad at myself for that and right now it's 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 like a hope and a prayer she's a good little masker who sometimes naps with their mask off, you know, and eats lunch in the classroom with their other little friends who are not vaccinated. You know, I cry every time I hear a story about the vaccines coming for the kids. I mean, I just like full on tears because it's like, you just, I think as parents were carrying around so much stress around the potential of our kids getting sick and the idea that five and up might be vaccinated soon, even though that doesn't help my kids directly, that's, all the big kids in the school, right? That's so many more kids who may be siblings to kids in my daughter's class um, who may, you know, accidentally cross paths with my kid in the hallway or find themselves in a special or an aftercare program or on the playground. And, you know, it's, 
it's really important. And so like, yes, I would give both kidneys right now to have my one and four-year-old vaccinated, but also we got to get the five and up done. And that's another thing we've been really pushing on. I've been asking repeatedly, what are we going to do when it's available? Can we do a clinic at every school? And the answer is no, we're going to, you know, let people do that through their doctors. Just, I mean, why can't we just make it easier for people? That's, I think it's going to be another mad rush hunger games as soon as that vaccine is ready. I mean, you've already seen people chopping at the bit for the booster. And um, I'm hopeful that the majority of, of kids five and up will get the vaccine. Um, and we have to keep working with families that aren't there yet, that don't trust it. But the more, the better, right? I mean, we just, we got to be ready. And I don't, I don't know that we are. And I hear from doctors and nurses and clinics that they're just also overwhelmed, right? So for our government to say, you know, we're going to let the private sector really take the lead on that. Was that in consultation with the private sector? Because they're pretty tired. Um, so that's, that's also in the back of my mind because, you know, we keep hearing it's coming. Pfizer's coming. Could be any day now. And we want to be ready. And I think, I mean, the, 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 the in-person schooling and vaccination, uh, you and I know this, parenting is an exercise in, in risk tolerance. Right. You're constantly making decisions about what, you can't protect your kid from everything. You wish you could, you can't. It's not healthy to try. Um, but, you know, when your kid is at the age where you're, uh, you know, can they go someplace on their own? Uh, there's risk in that. And you just, at some point, you have to weigh the risk. If there's a overnight or something, you know, the first overnight at a friend's house or whatever is, is a risk tolerance. Is it, is it worth it? Um, you know, you go to an amusement park or something like that is a risk tolerance exercise. And I think, um, uh, you know, there are kids who can't go outside of their homes, uh, you know, obviously, because they are, there is a, a risk uh, higher than it should be risk of danger. Um, and I just think the back to school stuff is just such a, um, just a very high stakes crystallized version of that. Yeah. Um, that, you know, if they wear the mask, they're probably in pretty good shape, but you don't know about meals and nap time. And it's rarely is there such a public need to declare your level of risk tolerance. Right. Right. Um, the very out public you know, you're crossing your finger and putting your, you know, oh, what is the long-term psychological damage to my child from a lack of socialization going to be versus exposure to a virus in proximate setting? Uh, it's just a real like 300 level parenting question. Really true. It's, and it's every day. Like it just yeah. doesn't stop. Yeah. One, one last question. Um, was there any talk, as I didn't see any, about communication? Um, you know, my daughter's school has also had uh, the form letter sent home about exposure. And of course, they can't, for privacy reasons, say what class it was or what kid it was. She uh, hasn't had to quarantine, but she had a teacher and a classmate vanish because they obviously got a quarantine because they were in closer proximity than my daughter was but nothing was messaged to the non-quarantined kids. Yeah. So yeah. they thought the teacher and the kid had COVID 
which yeah. they meant for all we know, but they probably were just quarantined out of, uh, as a precaution. But no one's communicating to the non-quarantine kids what's yeah. going on. I mean, that's that's been a topic of conversation for weeks, even before the hearing. It's um, it's a point of frustration, and I think it comes down to who's a close contact, who needs to know, and and how do we make people comfortable? And if you are as, as a parent not comfortable with the de- definition of close contact, and you feel like you need more information, how do you square that with what DCPS is willing to share? because of HIPAA or whatever else they've decided is the right, um, you know, regulation there. So it's, it's stressful. And I think what ultimately happens is you find things out through the grapevine, um, which creates other inequities, right? So we hear stories of parents who, you know, it's their kids. So they start calling all the classmates or, you know, um, something similar, like it's their, their friend's kid and the friend's parents say, you know, can you please start calling, right? It's like, how do we take care of each other as a community if we don't feel like the government is doing it for us? Um, And I find out, I I was at a pediatrician with Madeline yesterday and doctor said that he has a kid, it's always school in another class. And I was like, oh, they were the ones with the quarantine last week. It's like, thank God it was a false alarm. But like, we kind of know stuff. Um, but it's sometimes sort of by accident um, and it's not very timely. And that's the other thing It's like, people feel that the, the notice of exposure doesn't always happen quickly enough for parents to make good decisions about how they want to proceed. Yep. So what are your, based on yesterday's hearings, what are a couple of things you think are going to get better in short order with how the district's managing COVID for kids? So the new acting director of the Office of the State Superintendent for Education was talking about how they're really pushing their testing vendor to do more. Um, And so I think all of us who are pushing on testing at schools uh, are going to put our eggs into that basket and just see how much we can push that vendor to do, whether it's, you know, testing everybody or they go home for a quarantine or um, sending test kits home or you know, other options besides saliva, you know, we're going to push on that. And I think there's a lot of us council members who are very interested in that. There's coalitions of parents who are interested in that. I think that's, I felt a little bit more positive about that, um, but, you know, we'll see. Um, and then as chair of the Committee on Human Services, I'm really interested in what we need to do regarding CFSA and the educational neglect um, process that's triggered when parents are keeping their kids home as a precaution against COVID, uh, if we need to change a statute, if we need to push on a reg, um, those are the things that we're going to be looking at. Well, fingers crossed, but we'll, we'll keep the pressure on and we'll keep, uh, as a council, we'll keep the pressure on. And as parents, we'll just keep living it. and Right. Because yeah. that's all you can do. Amen. Thanks, Josh. Now, thank you. I appreciate your time. Um, listeners, please remember to subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, now on Amazon, uh, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search under Hearing the Council. Um, thank you again, Council Member, for joining us. Thank you, listeners. Tune in next time on DC Radio at 96.3 on your FMHD4 dial or at dcradio.gov. I'm Josh Gibson. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. Thanks again. Take care. See you next time.